the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity, which just happens to be the subtitle of my guest's new book. It's actually East West Street on the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. I like to pretend sometimes that I'm a psychic and that um, when I scheduled this interview a while back that I knew that it was going to be perfect timing with the genocides um, that we have been, what we just had in Orlando primarily. Um, but there is actually no, I could have scheduled it for any week just about these days because there is no shortage of genocide, whether even when it's not in the United States or in Europe, Western Europe, there's certainly, it's going on at some place any, t- any t- day of the week, which is where our world has come. Very tragically, but fortunately, we have uh, a guest today who's going to explain the origins of it all. Um, <laughs> Philippe, I think you need to explain the origins to the people who are committing these <laughs> atrocities. My guest is sure Philippe do. Sands, so welcome to the show. Sure do. Carol, it's terrific to be on your show, although, as you say, not terrific to be on it at such a moment. I've, in fact, just returned from a week in the States, and just last night, my daughter, who is 19 years old and who's spending the summer working in New York City, my wife is an American, emailed me to say she'd been watching an English television show about what had happened in Orlando, and on the show, one of the participants, a well-known journalist called Owen Jones, walked off the show... Uh, live in front of the cameras on our main TV, uh, Sky News, because the journalists who were questioning him were focusing on the killings as the killings of human beings rather than the killings of members of the LGBT community. In other words, this distinction uh, that goes to the heart of who we are, are we individuals or are we members of the group uh, of which we happen to belong, is that the way in which the law should function? You know, I actually uh, happened to see an article about that with a video. Yes, and I thought that took a lot of courage for him to make that point. Well, I, I think that the point that he was making, and, and it's a powerful one, is if that appalling killer had gone into a synagogue and killed 50 people, it's plain that the media, certainly I'm talking about the British media, would have focused on it as a, you know, a terrible act of anti-Semitism, terrible act of 
of killing of people because they happened to be Jewish. And what was very striking about this television program was that because it was the LGBT community, it seems, I only watched part of it and only very quickly, so I'm suspending judgment, but it seems there was a reluctance to home in on the community, although it's very clear that the killings took place not because these individuals had particular qualities that the killer didn't like, but because they were members of a group. And that's, of course, the essence of a genocide act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, while we're going there, <laughs> I know this isn't the main part, you know, uh, discussion of your book, but while we're going there, um, what's so interesting is that uh, Omar Mateen, the shooter in Orlando, um, was obviously struggling with his own um, latent homosexuality and not sure how latent it was. I mean, considering now that people have come forth saying that he contacted them on an app and talked to them at the, he was at the club and other gay clubs um, many times before this. And so clearly he was trapped. Uh, it seems like he was a, a gay man trapped in a Muslim family since his father has went on YouTube and has these videos where he talks about how God needs to punish the gays and so on. So he, he, you know, he couldn't express any homosexual yeah. feelings that he did have. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously going to have a fantastic conversation, Carol. Let's wind back one, uh, one moment back to 1945. Where my book, in effect, um, you know, heads off is that before 1945, um, there were no international criminal laws prohibiting mass killing by a state of its own nationals. Uh, that came uh, because of the work of two men. Uh, I write about four men. Let's just focus on two for the moment. A man called Lauterpacht, who put into the Nuremberg Statute a concept called crimes against humanity, which is the mass killing of individuals. And then in parallel with Lauterpacht was another man called Lemkin. They both came from the same town of Lviv, in, now in the Ukraine. And Lemkin invented the concept of genocide. And genocide was aimed at protecting groups and criminalizing the killing, not of individuals, but, but of groups, the destruction of groups. And uh, I describe in, in my book the evolution over 30 years of the two concepts and the tension between being an individual and protecting an individual on the one hand, and being a member of the group and protecting the group on the other hand. That's the fundamental tension at, at the heart of, of my book, which is, of course, also a very personal story because I tell the story of a third man who is my grandfather. This is a book that um, developed as you were searching the roots of your grandfather. So why don't we start with that because I find that incredibly fascinating. Sure. I think it's something that happens to a lot of people. I grew up in a household with many silences. My mother, who lived in France, but in fact had been born in Vienna, um, would not really talk about, as we were growing up, my brother and I, um, what had happened to her and what had happened to her father, my grandfather and, and her, my grandmother, her mother. And um, my grandfather lived until 1997, and I knew him very well. We were very close. But he would never talk about what happened before 1945. I knew vaguely he'd been born in a city called Lvov, Lemberg, now in the Ukraine, but he really wouldn't talk about it. And, of course, I could suspect what had happened. But uh, about... Uh, Ten years after he died, I received an invitation to give a lecture on the work that I do. I'm a professor at the University of London, 
Uh, and um, it was to talk about my work on crimes against humanity and genocide. I also litigate cases on mass killing. And the reason that I accepted to give the lecture was that it was an opportunity to visit the city where my grandfather was born and to open that door. And once I'd opened that door, as with so much in life, more doors opened, and I was led on a quest, really a double journey, to find out what happened to my grandfather and then remarkably to find out how that city had been at the heart of the way in which the concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity made it into the Nuremberg trial and into international law. So it's a sort of double journey uh, of exploration. And, um, you know, yes, you you, uh, prosecuted war criminals throughout the world for more than 20 years. Um, Mr. Sands has... Um, led the fight against some of the most heinous acts of genocide in the Congo, Yugoslavia, Iran, Chile, Egypt, the Czech Republic, etc. And you sit on the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne. And, but now, so 1997, so you had already become a lawyer before then, correct? Well, the, the interesting thing, Carol, it's really curious. Um, who knows how these things happen? But until 1997, I had mainly focused on environmental law and natural resources. And then in 1998, three things happened, all simultaneously. Firstly, uh, I was invited to participate in the negotiations of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Secondly, um, Senator Pinochet was arrested in London uh, for allegations of genocide and crimes against humanity in relation to what he had done allegedly while he was president of Chile back in the 70s. And thirdly, President Milosevic uh, of uh, former Yugoslavia was indicted by the um, Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal. And I got involved in all three stories. So curiously, the year my grandfather died, that world opened up and it led me 13 years later to this request to give a lecture, uh, which then effectively caused the book to be written. When I went to Lviv in October 2010, I invited my mother and I invited my aunt and I invited my brother. I never imagined that I would write a book. Uh, And it's one of the curiosities, uh, as we know so often in life, that you accept an invitation and it leads to places that you simply could not expect. Yes. Absolutely. Our unconscious mind is a, is a fascinating thing. Well, so, you know, okay. Carol, it's interesting. I was in, I was in L.A. Uh, last Thursday and Friday, not so far from you, I suspect. I, I wish uh, we'd been in touch. And I, gave, yes. I, did a, I was on a panel at the L.A. Museum of the Holocaust with a very fine historian, uh, David Myers. And he was very generous about the book uh, when he introduced it. And then he said, one of the things, and this is him speaking, he said, one of the things none of the reviewers mention is that actually this is a a, a book about, as he put it, an obsession, Sands' obsession to find out the Mm -hmm. truth of what happened to his family. And I'd never thought about it quite like that. But since he put it in those terms, I can quite see that that is how one would look at it. Yes. And so how how did this unravel? once you got there? Well, I needed, I realized that I, that I needed to, 
to take my grandfather's story first, I needed to find out a number of things. I needed the story of my grandfather in short was he leaves Lemberg, Lviv, uh, in 1914 when he's a 10-year-old boy. He leaves with his mother and his uh, two sisters. His, his, uh, his father and his brother have both died in, in, in the war, uh, the Russian invasion of Lemberg. He then goes to Vienna. He grows up in Vienna. He marries. He has a child, my mother, who's born in July 1938. And then the family moves to Paris at some point in 1939. I had always thought that they had moved together. But what I discovered was that they did not. My grandfather left by himself. My mother followed six months later by herself as a one-year-old child, which was a bit of a mystery. And my grandmother oh. stayed behind. So what I needed to know was the answers to three questions. Firstly, why did my grandfather leave by himself? Secondly, uh -huh. who took my mother from, to safety from Vienna to Paris in the summer of 39? And thirdly, and probably most significantly in terms of the psychological well-being of my mother, why did her mother stay behind in yes. Vienna? and not accompany her only child, her one-year-old infant, yes. to Paris, as she could have done. Yes. So we're on a cliffhanger here, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I spent five years looking for the answers, and uh, I don't know how much you want me to give away, but I found out but, all of the answers that I was looking for. Um, well, I discovered... Well, like, we'd like to know... I mean, the thing that... Um, well, before you get into that... Did your mother know, I, I mean, I guess, are you saying that your mother didn't know the answers to these questions, or she just didn't tell you? My mother didn't know the answers, and more to the point, my mother didn't want to ask the questions. My mother was uh -huh. understandably, and I, I understand this very much, was fearful about what she might discover. And I think mm. it's pretty classical in those circumstances um, when one is fearful about what one might learn is you just say, well, you know, I'm not going to open that door. Then along comes the son, the next generation, who's not so directly touched, shall we say. And, and yes. it was possible for me to open doors that my mother, who's alive and very healthy and very well, did not want to open. And, yes. And didn't want to open because I think she was very fearful of the, you know, the pain that would be created but also fearful about what she might discover. Uh, and so I, in opening those doors, needed to be incredibly sensitive to what I might find and how I would communicate that to my mother. Yes, absolutely. So, yes, of course I would like to know. I mean, I know you don't want to give the whole book away to them people, but there's so much more to the book than just, you know, in addition to the story, because the story opens up to the rest of learning about genocide and so on. But so whatever you feel comfortable talking about, sure. I'm sure we would all love to hear. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of, I, I mean, I won't give everything away, but I'll give you a couple of clues. Sure. Firstly, sure. I did discover from a scrap of paper the identity of the person who had carried my mother to safety. Um, she was an evangelical Christian missionary who came from oh. Norwich in England, who was driven by a particular interpretation of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verse 1. You literally couldn't make this up. Her name was Elsie Tilney. She never told a single person 
what she had done to bring children to safety in 1939 and 1940. And I think if I had not used my detective work, uh, her uh, heroic activities and her deep courage, I think, would never have been shown to light. Interestingly, she ended up life living in Florida in Coconut Grove with her brother Fred. (laughs) And you literally could not invent this. Fred was a bodybuilder, and he was the bodybuilder who discovered Charles Atlas. And uh, Elsie Tilney and Fred Tilney and Charles Atlas would hang out together on Coconut Grove in Miami in the (laughs) 1970s until she passed away. You literally couldn't invent it. Right. (laughs) That's quite a difference from the train ride with your mother. Well, it's pretty remarkable. And I think what's interesting for me is that what you learn is that things are never what they seem. This was a lady who had devoted herself in the 1920s and the 1930s to traveling to North Africa and trying to bring uh, Muslims and Jews to convert to Jesus. And she took a different path in 1938, 39, and she decided she would save children and in a different way, and she is truly a remarkable individual. So, so, so that's what I learned. Say, yeah. So she was trying to save Jewish children from the Nazi, uh, from the Holocaust. Yes, yes, and probably not only Jewish children, but probably also Protestant children, because as you know, uh, the Nazis were particularly uh, unpleasant uh, in relation to others who were against their views, and that would include... Um, members of the Protestant community, and actually members of the Catholic community too, but mostly, mostly Jewish children. And my mother then was taken to safety in Paris, and in fact she became a hidden child, uh, and she was hidden for four and a half years in a place that she doesn't remember. She has no memory that she can speak of uh, about those first five years of her life. Wow. But was she with your father, with, with her father, or...? She was... She was hidden just outside Paris. My grandfather lived in Paris, and I think from time to time he would see her. But then we come to the other part of the story, which I think for any child raises a very big question. How could my mother not be with me? Why did her mother, why did my grandmother stay behind in Vienna? And I think my mother was very fearful about that. I think she had a suspicion, uh, and the suspicion was um, borne out by my hiring a private investigator in Vienna and chasing around the world. Uh, And it turned out that my uh, grandmother had a lover. And the lover uh, was not, as my mother had feared, a uh, high-ranking Nazi in Vienna, but a secret hidden Jew uh, living in Vienna. And I tracked that all the way around the world and remarkably, I found the answer in Massapequa, New York, um, when I managed to locate the granddaughter of my grandmother's lover. And in the oh attic God. in Massapequa, New York, we found photographs of the two of them in Vienna in 1941. Uh, again, you couldn't invent such a story. You know, this is, I hope your book is going to be made into a movie. This sounds like an amazing movie. <laughs> Well, it's funny I mean, it that you could say like, that. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because you because, have been because, because because already the movie people are getting in touch, and that's something I feel. Yes. You know. You know, Carol. One of the things I feel curious about this, um, and it takes us into your your world, is in the book only came out two weeks ago. It's had massive attention in the UK and the US, 
And I'm feeling a slight disconnect. I, there are moments where I feel quite, um, it's almost, uh, not quite overwhelmed, but almost overwhelmed because I'm dealing mm-hmm. with a story of immense pain for, um, for many people in this terrible and difficult period. And, and I feel slightly uncomfortable, um, if you like, profiting from it. I'm not talking about a financial uh-huh. sense, but I'm talking about using a story which brought so much grief to so many people. Mm. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with stories. That, that one of the things in writing a book is you maintain control over the content. I have total yes. control. Whereas the yes. moment it goes into that other medium that you've just mentioned, the world of film or television, you will lose control. And I think that raises questions for me about how this might be done. Well, of course, being a lawyer, <laughs> you know that uh, that some of these things can be written into the contract. But yes, uh, absolutely, I know what you mean. But you know, it makes me think of the movie. Um, it was the golden... What was that movie? And the name of the movie of the, about the paintings, the the, woman, was, in, the, the woman in gold, the woman, the woman in, gold. in gold. Yes. In fact, I had um, I had people involved in that on my radio show when that came out. Right. And so it kind of, right. this this story sort of reminds me of that. And yes, they were saying that they had changed some things in the movie, but well, that on the whole, it was it was pretty authentic, and that they did yeah. have some say. I mean, the issue for me, you'll see if you have a chance to read the book fully through cover to cover, you'll see that I'm very, very careful not to judge people. I mean, I, I find it very hard to imagine what it was like to be in that period and the, the, the way in which people took decisions and the decisions they took. And not having been there, I cannot know, for example, exactly why my grandmother acted as she did. There may have been very good reasons for it. Uh, and and I think one learns not to judge. I, I should say there is a fourth man in my book, as though it's not um, dramatic enough. The fourth man in my book is called Hans Frank, uh, and he, you will be delighted to know, was actually Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer, and he did, then mm. became Governor General of Occupied Poland. And in that capacity, he oversaw the killings, as you know, of four million Jews and Poles in Poland. Amongst those four million were the entire families of my grandfather that had remained in Lemberg and the entire families of the men who created the concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide. And so in a curious way, Hans Frank's actions bind me to the two men who created the concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity, whose ideas are the substance of my daily life in a, in a, in a, in a day-to-day working sense. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, to go back, you were saying earlier that, you know, what, of course you were in a difficult, sensitive position conveying what you did find to your mother. So how, how, how did that go over? How did that change her? How did she, how well, was she able to accept that? Well, interestingly, um, my mother has chosen, and I respect that, to to never engage in either door opening of these matters or any form of analysis or therapy in relation to these deeply complex issues, and I completely respect that. I'd chosen another path. I'd I'd been involved in analysis over a number of years when I was in my 30s, 
And so I felt able to open these doors. And I knew that one of the things that was extremely important, I have a very good relationship with my mother, is, and she trusted me to address these issues in a way that would be sensitive to, to her. I decided that what I would do was I would keep her generally informed of everything that I came across, more or less as I came across it so that she uh -huh. could basically ring the warning bells if I was crossing lines uh -huh. that were really difficult for her. But if you've put your finger on it very rightly, I was torn, if you like. In one sense, I'm, I'm being pulled in the direction of finding the truth. On the other direction, I'm being pulled in this sort of the son's protective embrace of his mother of not wanting yeah. to call her grief or, or so so you're treading a very thin line but to cut to the chase she has ended up in a very good place she is delighted with the way the book has been received the reviews have, yeah. as you've said have been very positive and i think the story that has emerged is one that she is fully comfortable with and, and that leaves me as a son feeling very comfortable about the project i have i i have to say uh-huh it, it, it could have taken it could have taken a different direction, Carol. It may have ended up in a very bad place, but 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 happily it didn't. Yes, because I was going to say, I mean, I'm glad that um, you were able to inform her of these things because because that would make it even more difficult with the book, you know, feeling guilty about the book. You know, the more widespread uh, the book would become, you would. I mean, you, there would be a part of you not wanting to make it that well-known or that, um, you know, for fear that, that it will all get back to your mother. Absolutely. I mean, my mother is a big and voracious book reader, and she was bound to read it. But, of course, I, I gave it to her well before it came out. I gave her the manuscript. The $64 million question is, what would I have done if I had come across something that was so devastating to her yes. that I thought yes. it, 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 it might cause her real difficulties. Um, there yes. is, I don't want to give it away. There was one issue that did come up which caused that question to be uh, addressed, and that uh -huh. was enormously difficult. And you know what I did? I sort of froze. I, I'm a courtroom lawyer. Nothing much uh, frightens me. I just proceed in the face of adversity and difficulty but at one moment I came across something that caused me to pause for three or four months um, because mm -hmm. I didn't know what the right thing was to do. I wanted to do the right thing to those I cared about the most. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so now did you say, when did you say that her, your, your mother's mother died? She died in 1986, and her father died in 1997. Okay, so then she wasn't. So then your mother wasn't able to ask. Your, your her mother was already deceased, but when you were finding out these things. Uh, absolutely, I only started 15 years later in 2010. Yeah. Actually, 25 years later in 2010. But 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 I know that she, my mother did have some conversations with her parents, and uh -huh. slowly. Um, she would give me tidbits of information about what had come out. Um, she didn't know very much, and in the end, I think she decided she didn't want to ask her parents too many questions. And that, that, mm -hmm. was, a, that was an act of love and an act of respect. I mean, 
I knew that. Mm-hmm. I grew up. I grew up with my grandparents, and as a kid, I knew there were certain things you didn't talk about, you didn't ask about, and I think for a child, a sort of sixth sense cuts in, and you back off the moment you approach a territory that may be difficult or delicate, and a child wants to respect their grandparents and not cause difficulties. So there's a lot of treading mm-hmm. around in relation to these sensitive issues. I should say, I think my theme is a universal theme. I do work, as you said at the beginning of your program, in many parts of the world where mass atrocities happen. And um, I suspect the silences that I'm talking about are silences that, that touch any group of people who've been through a terrible trauma. We come back to Orlando and the terrible events over the weekend that will be deeply traumatic for a very large number of people. And, and, yes. and silence is often the way people deal with things. Yes, I was actually going to say that, that um, it, even when families didn't have these kinds of mysteries, um, grandparents and parents you know, have been very hesitant to talk to their children and grandchildren about what went on during the Holocaust anyway, just because it was so atrocious and painful and, and black that um, there's, I mean, that's one of the, as a psychiatrist, that's one of the um, problems. <laughs> it's a good thing that you went to analysis, <laughs> but that's yeah. one of the problems, as you obviously know, that children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have this secrecy, this, you know, this... Um, not feeling a, a feeling of being of their parents and grandparents wanting to keep them distant from the Absolutely. from history. Absolutely. Can I can I share with you? I don't know if you have the book with you, um, Carol. But right at the beginning of the book, I open the book with two quotations, and I just want to take you to the second one. Sure. It's it's a quotation by a psychoanalyst called Nicholas Abraham, who worked with another psychoanalyst called Maria Torok. And they wrote a book called Notes on the Phantom that was published in 1975. And the quote, the quote is as follows, and I'm quoting here, What haunts are not the dead, but the gaps left within us by the secrets of others. And mm. that quotation came to me when I asked a friend of mine, actually who was a psychiatrist, um, what work is done on the relationship not between parent and child, but between grandparent and grandchild. And I was referred to the work and the writings of Abraham and Torog, who had specialized, who devoted 40 years of their professional careers to exploring the way in which a grandparent communicates subconsciously or in other ways with a grandchild, and in which the trauma of the grandparent reappears not in the next generation, but in the second mm. generation after, in, in the grandchild. Mm. And, and for me, if you ask me the question, why did I write this book? I wrote this book because I was touched by the gaps left within me by the secrets of my grandparents. I wanted to know mm-hmm. their secrets because I felt that my own day-to-day existence was informed in some way by the experiences they had gone through that they did not feel able to share with me, no doubt, for entirely good reasons. Hmm. That's very interesting. Um, you know, what do you think of the, in the current... Well, I'm not sure um, 
uh, well, I guess it must be in the UK too, but I'm not sure if it's as popular in the UK. Um, Ancestry.com. Is that more and more people seem to be um, following their curiosity? Now, of course, that's not at the same uh, depth um, as going as what you did, traveling to the city and and doing all of your detective work. But but certainly some um, secrets are being revealed as people search for their ancestors at Ancestry.com. What do you think of all of that? I think you're absolutely putting your finger on the pulse of this. I used, actually, Ancestry.com a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh. A lot of material. It was a wonderful resource. But I think I'm just part of that sense of growing understanding that to understand ourselves, we need to go back to our forebears. We need to know who they are. We need to know where they lived. We need to know how they lived, what they looked like, who they lived with. And I think that is what really motivated me. It's not just that I was curious about the lives of my grandparents. It's that I had a sense that if I knew more about the lives of my grandparents, I would understand more about myself and more about what motivated me and made me take some of the decisions that I've taken. And and I feel that has happened. And actually, interestingly, my son, who is 21, said to me the other day that it was very interesting for him to read the book because he now felt that he could connect to a past, to a hinterland, as he put it, that I had not known when I was his age. In other words, I just had a blurry picture, and he had now a sort of finely painted uh, landscape Mm. which allowed him to know better who he was. And that, I thought, made very clear to me the difference between him and me. I'm a different person from him. He's a different person from me because, in part, he has been able to know through the work that I've done what came before. And, And I was struck by that observation. Yes, yes. Hmm, that's very interesting. Well, to, uh, to be honest, no, I have not yet read the book, but after this, <laughs> I am going to certainly be getting it. I'd love to have you on again so we can talk more about it. Um, uh, uh, oh, I'd be delighted, Carol. I've really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> and as I mentioned to you before we went on, I, I've just, just today amazingly received a personal invitation from the United Kingdom's Royal College of Psychiatrists to give a lecture and a conversation uh, on exactly these issues uh, early next year. Yes, I think, I think that's fabulous. Um, you know, actually, my father's family was born in Poland, came from Poland. You, 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 need, you need to read the book, Carol, because I think... <laughs> I think, I think is, like, is he mentioned in there? Is there a Lieberman in your book? <laughs> well, um, there's a lot of names, but, but, but what, you will, what it will resonate with for anyone who has a past that is connected to those events or that place or that part of the world, doors will be opened that I, that I think obviously you open anyway in your professional capacity, uh, but, but, but which of which you must have speculated also. Yes, well, hmm. um, I mean, I think what you're saying is absolutely true. Um, yeah, and, and you know, to get to sort of the sort of the um, theories, you know, the genocide and crimes against humanity. Uh, if more people, uh, what, what do you think of this? If more people did um, 
examined their past and did look into those gaps and so on, which may now be um, aided with Ancestry.com. But, you know, um, you'd have to, you have to kind of plunge into it. I mean, um, that, that perhaps there wouldn't be as many um, genocides. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for that. But still, that, that if, if, I guess if the human race was more connected and felt more connected to its past, Maybe there would be less genocide well, crimes against humanity. It, it's very interesting you raise that. I should mention that accompanying, accompanying the book is a film that I've made with the BBC. It's, it's on Netflix now. It's called My Nazi Legacy. And in it, I explore uh, with the sons of two very senior Nazis how they feel about their fathers. Oh, well. One is the son of Hans Frank, and he loathes his father, he describes his father as a criminal who deserved to hang at Nuremberg. The other man is Horst von Wächter, who is the son of Hans Frank's deputy, Otto von Wächter. And in contrast to Nicholas Frank, who, who hates his father vitriolically, Horst von Wächter loves his father and thinks his father was a good, wonderful, and liberal man. And in the film, we explore two different approaches to dealing with a father who has been involved in mass murder. And they take opposite directions. And I think the film's had a certain success precisely because the viewer is able to um, see how, with essentially the same story behind them, two individuals, men now in their late, late 70s, deal with it completely differently. And one of the themes that emerges in the film is the unwillingness of Horst von Wester to confront the reality of what his father did, in mm. my view, leads to the possibility that the same things could happen again. Mm, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, let's talk about how um, these concepts um, relate to, well, to terrorism. Um, and, and, you know, the... The it's it's actually both it's genocide and crimes against humanity that's happening as as exemplified in the Orlando shooting that we were talking about at the beginning. Um, how 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 is what is the current um, status of that as compared to the origins of it? Well, the current status is that after these two terms were invented in 1945, and then incorporated into the Nuremberg judgment and what came subsequently, nothing happened for 50 years. There were no international criminal trials on crimes against humanity or genocide until the atrocities in Rwanda and in Yugoslavia. And you may well remember in the mid-1990s when those terrible events happened, I think that the reason that international tribunals were created to deal with the consequences of what was happened was that they were born by feelings of guilt, that we, the international community, countries, peoples, had failed to prevent these horrors from happening. And so what was done was the government said, well, we didn't stop them from happening, at least let's try to punish them. And so uh, after a 50-year period of quiet and silence, the two concepts came roaring back, and they are now very much 
uh, part of our lives. And if you open your newspaper, you will see genocides, as you mentioned at the beginning, frequently referred to, and you will see crimes against humanity frequently referred to. I mean, just last week mm -hmm. while I was in the States, you know, the New York Times had a big article about crimes against humanity in Mexico uh, in relation to the war on drugs. And then there was another story on genocide in northern Iraq in relation to the Yazidi community and the Christian community and the Shiite community. And then on Sunday, we had these terrible events in Orlando, uh, which seem to have been motivated, whatever the individual's background, by a desire to exterminate a particular group of people because of the group they happened to be a member of. That is classically a hate crime, but it is also a genocidal instinct. Uh-huh, uh-huh. When you say instinct, is that um, what you talk about in the book, that there is something instinct? I mean, violence, uh, well, aggressiveness, as Freud um, discovered 100 years ago wrote and wrote about, um, we're born with two uh, basic instincts, aggression and sex. And aggression is supposed to, in a normal, happy, healthy family, um, become transferred, trans, it transformed into um, ambition and competitiveness and health, a healthy kind of quality, but with all the especially, you know, in modern times with all of the violent movies, violent video games, and so on, um, it has become distorted and has become more uh, violent than ever before. So, but are you saying that there is also an, a, a kind of instinct to genocide specifically? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or an analyst. I'm just a lawyer. So I'm very careful not to tread in, into areas that, I, that I'm not expert on. But, but, but I know how to assess evidence. That's my job. And the assessment of evidence for me is that what I've learned in my work is that mass killing happens when people distinguish between them and us. That's what causes an instinct towards mass killing. Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. You'll be interested, you make the Freudian point about the relationship between sex and violence, you will see that there is plenty of sexual instinct in the book also that I refer to, which is accompanied by instincts of violence. Uh, and the interplay hmm. between the two is pretty striking. Okay, well then I'm going to have to do my homework and read it and have you back on. Now I will be delighted, Carol. I'd be really delighted. Where um, where would you like to send people to buy the book? And let me say the name again of the book. It's called yeah. East West Street on the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. Would you like them? Well, where would you like them to go to get it? I mean, I'd love them to go and buy it in their local independent bookstores, which I'm yes. incredibly supportive of. But if they don't have a local independent bookstore near them, uh, they should go onto a, a seller like Amazon, and you will find it on the bestseller list now of Amazon.com, and you can get it in uh, ebook. And you can get it in audio, and if you get it in audio, you'll have the additional pleasure of listening to me, because it's narrated by a famous English actor in part, and by me in part. So uh, oh, that sounds if great. you want to hear more of my English voice, buy the audio version. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Uh, again, thank you so much, Philippe Sands. And again, the book is called East West Street on the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. I'm sure you have... Um, piqued everyone's interest 
and um, hopefully the sales will, it'll be, will continue to be on the number one bestseller list. So thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you all thank for listening. You, thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.